Hi, everybody. Just a quick holiday season reminder. My book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, How Food Lovers, Free Spirits, Misfits, and Wanderers Created a New American Profession, is available everywhere books are sold and makes a great gift for the food or chef-obsessed person in your life or a great use of that Amazon gift card somebody might have given you or be about to give you. It's the book The Wall Street Journal calls Fast, Furious, and Fun, that Salon.com calls a terrific history of chefs in America, and about which legendary food writer Ruth Reichel wrote, it's impressive, I haven't read anything like it. That's Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. Happy holidays and happy reading. This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio. Give me revenue. Give me people coming to the restaurant. Like, I want to go to work every day. I want to go to the market every day. I want to buy produce. I want to see guests. I want to run my business. And, you know, I think, sure, that's a byproduct of, of maturity. But what is maturity besides, like, falling down as many times as you have throughout your life and recognizing that, hey, you know what? Like, you might be hot shit today, but tomorrow you're going to suck. Tomorrow you're going to have a terrible day. Tomorrow, like... Like, life will come back around and kick you right in the teeth again. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, like, kind of get, like, a nice home base and, like, a little bit more settled and just do your work, you know, people are actually going to cheer for it at some point. I mean, it does feel wonderful. I, I don't think it's something that's on our mind. I mean, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but um, when we're at the restaurant, we're not thinking about, wow, we're really hot, we're really awesome. Like, you know, living in that in that moment, we're doing our best to make sure that we're consistent and and things are amazing and we're very focused on just doing what we do. It doesn't change the work. It doesn't change the work at all. Those are chefs David Nafeld and Angela Pinkerton of Cafico Restaurant in San Francisco, California. Our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, here with... Caitlin Friedman. Caitlin, I just drafted you. <laughs> I know. I just I'm, My morning went in a totally different direction. You were hanging out. You were watching, I don't even know what, something Saturday morning movie. On Netflix. On Netflix. <laughs> and chilling out. Yeah. And I had a moment because I had recorded the show, edited the show, was about to transmit it, and... I had two pieces of news hit me. One I'm very sad about and one I'm very happy about. Wow. I'm going to do the one I'm happy about first. Okay. So what is the coolest thing a podcast can do? Go live? I believe the coolest thing a podcast can do is a show with a live audience. So I was right. Yes. Well, you knew the answer. (laughs) I mean, this is dishonest. I try to be honest. I always tell my... Listeners, well, I will never lie to them. I actually, it could have gone another way. You could have just said, interview someone amazing. That's going to also be true. Okay. Okay, so here's what's happening. I am so excited to announce this, and you guys are the first to hear about it. I 
am going to be participating, or I should say Andrew Talks to Chefs is going to be participating in the second annual Brooklyn Podcast Festival. That is a live festival. It takes place at three different venues in Brooklyn, New York. It's happening in January. I'm going to be doing a live show at the Bell House. And if you live or if you've ever been in the Gowanus area and if you've been to the Bell House, you know that's a very cool place to do anything. And we're going to do a live show, Caitlin. We're going to, it's a 350-seat venue. Uh, it's then going to air eventually on the podcast. But we're going to do a live show with a live audience. The headliner guest is going to be Tom Colicchio. I know. When you told me that, I was so excited for you. I'm really happy. Um, I've never interviewed Tom on The Front Burner, my old show with Jimmy Bradley. I've never had him on this show. I have interviewed him for the book. He, I think, is like one of the great interviews you can have covering the chef world because, A, he, he has roots that go back into the 80s. He worked at places like the Gotham Bar and Grill and the Quilted Giraffe and you know was part of that amazing generation. Uh, then he came into his own as a chef. I think he's just incredible. He was at the Gramercy Tavern and then Open Craft, which is a, a fantastic restaurant. And he's opened several crafts and craft offshoots around the country and other restaurants that stand on their own that have nothing to do with craft. And he obviously has now been a part of the television world. He's been the head judge of Top Chef for what is about to be the 16th season. What? So Tom's like straddles all these different eras and areas. And he's also super intelligent. And, you know, he's very out there and very open about his view of world events and politics. And I can't think of a better guest. I'm so excited to have him. We are also going to have, and this is what I just found out, because I did not know the third member of this panel until I had edited the original version of this intro. Uh, But now I can say with full confidence, what the panel will be. We are also, in addition to my deep dive interview with Tom, we are going to do a panel discussion, Brooklyn Then and Now. So we are going to have Alan Harding, who is one of the pioneers of the modern Brooklyn restaurant scene. Alan used to have a place called Patois. That was his first one. He was a Manhattan chef that went over the bridge into Brooklyn and got a lot of attention. He's had a bunch of places over the years. Most recently, he was affiliated with the Gowanus Yacht Club, which is this funky little seasonal bar that happens in the spring and summer. Alex Raj, who got known at Tia Paul and El Quinto Pino and Ticlico in uh, Manhattan, then opened La Vara several years ago in Brooklyn, and just recently opened St. Julivert, which is a seafood restaurant. She is going to be on the panel. And one of the hottest young chefs in the country, Greg Backstrom of Olmstead Restaurant, who was a first season guest on this show, is going to be on the panel as well. Those will be the three panelists. So it will be the headliner interview with Tom Colicchio, Brooklyn Then and Now with those three chefs. You're going to come on stage. You what? didn't know that before you came on air. What are you talking about? You're going to come on stage. We're okay. going to create the show on stage. Okay. <laughs> and there's a band called Fathers, which is comprised of some of the members of After School Special, which is the band that does the theme music for this show. They are going to be live at the venue doing the theme song and all the break music and all that. And additionally, between Doors Open and Showtime, they will be performing their own music. There'll be a live set. So is the set before or after? Oh my gosh, Caitlin. 
What? Between Doors Open oh, and Showtime. <laughs> sorry. Okay. I'm not editing that out. Just edit it no, out. No, that stays Come in. On, just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I don't know where I went. I'm back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Wait, Andrew, when is it? Oh, right. The show is Saturday, January 12th. Doors open at 2 p.m. Show begins at 2.30, and it'll run for about 90 minutes. It's going to be a great time. Anyway, guys, this is all going to be on my social media. The handle for this show is at Chef Podcast, so you can get this there. But I will tell you, if you want to get tickets, if you want to be among the first to get tickets, the address for tickets for this show specifically is ATTC. That is Andrew Talks to Chefs. ATTC BK Podfest eventbrite.com if you didn't get a chance to write that down don't worry it will be on my social media over the next several weeks you'll be able to find it you can also just google up brooklyn podcast festival find your way to it there and i want to tell you it's a 15 dollars ticket but with the promo code andrew just 10 bucks 10 bucks for tom colicchio greg backstrom alex raj alan harding live music caitlin and me it's about a 90 minute show <laughs> Two hours if you count the uh, the band set. What? I'm just laughing because I had no idea I was doing this. Yes, you're going to come on and be on there with me. Okay. okay. <laughs> Do I need to say anything else about that? No. All right, please. If you're in the New York area, if you have friends in the New York area, let them know. I think it's going to be a really great show. Also, I have to say, I cannot believe this, but you know who's on right after me? Who? Pop Culture Happy Hour. I love that show. Yeah, that is one of the NPR shows that I listened to when I was sort of in training, when I decided I wanted to do a podcast, they were one of the like four or five shows that I listened to. They're like my role, one of my role models. You need to reach out to them. Mm, no. I don't know if they need that kind of, I don't know. I All feel right. like they'd be a little stalkery. But, okay, fine. But they're right after but me. But you can stalk them in real life. Yes, I right can stalk them in real life. <laughs> okay, so today's guests are David Nafeld and Angela Pinkerton. They have one of the hottest restaurants in the country. They have Kefiko. That is spelled, you're rolling, you, you don't know what that means. Well, I wasn't rolling my eyes. I was going, how do you spell that? What does that, that? mean? Yeah, yeah, no, how do you spell it? Yeah, so it's C-H-E, mm-hmm. and the second word is F-I-C-O. It is an Italian phrase. It, we explain it in the interview. But the key thing is that you are supposed to actually say it with some emphasis, or as David says in the interview, some gusto. So every time I say it, I just like to go a little, Che fico! Okay. That's the name of it. Anyway, it made earlier this year... The Bon Appetit Hot 10 list of hot restaurants in the country. And then, since we recorded this interview, it made Esquire Magazine's list of best restaurants in the country. And I should say the Esquire list is prepared by our semi-neighbor, two villages over, Jeff Gordner. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, but we don't talk about it in the interview because this interview was recorded before that ran. So, uh, David and Angela are the chef and pastry chef of Kefiko. The sad piece of news, I alluded to two pieces of news at the beginning of this intro, why I'm redoing this intro very suddenly, because I found both of these things out in the interim. They had a, or I should say they have for another week, what is what was billed as a dinette and bakery called Theorita. It was not long, it was relatively recently open when we had done this interview. And they're closing. Aww. They're closing. So I'm very sad. We it does come, we do talk about it in the interview. I'm going to leave it in. We don't talk about it that much. 
Uh, but I do have to say, it's very poignant to me. It's actually the last thing we talk about in the episode. And I think, you know, from a scientific, detached, impersonal way of looking at it, this episode sort of illustrates what young chefs and restaurateurs are up against right now, right? They have one restaurant that's red hot. Mm -hmm. They have another restaurant that just couldn't hang in and they've made the decision to close it. If I, if what I've read is accurate online, uh, they're going to be doing something else in that space. So I'll look forward to that. I should say I haven't been to even Kefiko. I haven't even been there. But um, my condolences, guys. I, you know, there was so much excitement in your voices when you talked about it. I'm very sorry to hear about it. This news is not super fresh. It's about a week old. I hadn't heard it here in New York. I've been running around like a madman. But while I was getting, you know, the notes together for the show description and the social media tags and all that, I noticed that there had been uh, this announcement. So I'm very sad about that. But on the happier side of things, they still have one of the hottest restaurants in the United States and one of the places I cannot wait to visit the next time I'm in the Bay Area. It may even be at the very tippy top of my list. Really? Maybe we'll go together. Oh, that sounds great. Maybe we'll do a live show in San Francisco. Can we go tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, we might get put up on child endangerment charges if we leave our kids. Oh, but right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that. <laughs> okay. This interview was conducted... Several weeks ago at the Mermaid Inn restaurant in New York City, my friend Danny Abrams owns the three Mermaid Inns, and he has graciously invited me to make them my home for the podcast when I'm out and about. If I need a location, uh, they're only open for dinner there, so if I can come in during the day, they let me use the space. I didn't know that. That's really nice yeah, of him. Yeah, so I, uh, J.J. Johnson, I used the Upper West Side space a couple of months back. And this was at their Second Avenue space in the East Village uh, a few weeks back. Also, I need to say to David and Angela, if it seems like it took a while for me to get this show up, uh, you guys, you know, several, uh, a couple episodes back, I alluded to the fact that I look at these episodes and the way I sequence them, the way a DJ looks at, you know, a mix or a, the sequencing of songs. Uh, there were a couple of people who have books out. I wanted to give them as much time during the holidays as I could because... That's obviously when people who have books are looking to sell them. And I felt like this interview was very much an evergreen one. It turns out that was mostly true, but then there's this poignant news about Theorito, which I feel terrible about, but I am at least glad I got to acknowledge it on the air. So does that all sound okay, Caitlin? I think that sounds pretty good. Okay. I also need to thank Susan Hosmer for setting up this interview. Uh, excuse me. I also need to thank Stephanie Davis for setting up this interview and Susan Hosmer, who was kind of shepherding David and Angela around town, who helped make it happen that day and also was nice enough to run out and get us coffees. You'll hear that happen during the show. Okay, with that, I'm going to ask you all to imagine that you are walking into the Mermaid Inn on a weekday afternoon, that you go through the main dining room where the staff is setting up and the cooks are prepping in the open kitchen. You go through to the back patio, which is tented for the season, and you find me, Angela, and David at a table beginning our conversation. Here you go. Your restaurant in San Francisco is, how do we say it? How do you say it? It's hot. <laughs> Angela just <laughs> burst into laughter. You guys are red hot. I, I, when you said, how do you say it? I was used to people just saying, how do you say the name? No. Oh, well, that. Well, why don't we get that out of the way? Why don't we get that out of the way? 
Well, it, it, nobody. Are you your well, well, the well. Wait. So first, we got to say how it's spelled. It is spelled C H E, and the second word is F I C O. Yeah. Before before we give the pronunciation, it translates to what? So the literal translation means "what a fig," which doesn't make a ton of sense, but right. it's a slang term in Italy used to basically say, "Oh, that's cool." So. Right. Um, you'll hear that, and then later on, we also found out it's a, um, it's kind of a cat call also for women to call men. For women to call men. Yeah. Oh so, wow. And in classic they Italian form, we didn't know that. Wow. That's so that's <laughs> so of the moment. Yeah. Basically, saying, part of the reckoning. Like, you know, calling a man a juicy piece of fruit almost. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which we definitely found that out later. I is there a context in Italy where that is there like it, you know in in the U.S. or at least in New York, right? The, the stereotypical moment is the construction workers on a lunch break. Yeah. On on uh, Central Park South. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what comes to my mind. Well, totally, and I mean, that's... But where would that happen in Italy? Well, I mean, you know, in Rome, you still kind of... You'll walk through neighborhoods, and you'll you'll see women turn around and definitely call across the street to a man. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just a fact of life there. Uh, Na- in Naples, you'll see that kind of stuff all the time, to be honest. Okay. Um, this has never happened to me. Should I be offended? No, not at all. Not at all. Just spend more time there, I'm sure. It's just Eventually. Of, yeah, you know, you just got to take away Eventually, it, some know, kindly gotta, grandmother will take take pity on me. Listen, you know, it takes all kinds. Okay, so but okay, so it's spelled C H E and the second word is F I C O. Most people who see that, as I did before I did some research on you guys, would say Chefico. Right. That is wrong. Correct. Go ahead. How do you say it properly? So you said Kefico. Kefico. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean I've heard every iteration of it. Uh Chefico. Um yeah. Chefico. Chefico. Uh, Angela one time got uh, corrected at a charity event we were doing by a woman saying that she didn't say the name of our restaurant correctly, and Angela... She told me I should learn how to pronounce it before we open. Yeah. Pronounce which, the name of my own restaurant. Which was really funny, and then Angela said, I should have slapped the ice cream out of her hand. <laughs> nice! <laughs> nice! Because we were definitely running low on ice cream for that event, yeah. and she's like, I should have just taken hers back. I didn't want to give her... <laughs> <laughs> no ice cream for you. Like okay, so, so as I was saying... Uh, but you guys are in this moment. This is this coveted moment. There's there's more restaurants in this country than there ever have been before. There's more, you know, every season you can look at, you know, Eater or whatever blog in a given town and see, you know, the number of notable new openings. It's usually in the, it's always in the double figure. Sometimes it's in the 30s. I mean, it's crazy. There's so much competition. There's so much competition for attention. And Bon Appetit, is, you're on their list of 10 restaurants this year that are kind of in the stratosphere of, you know, what we would call, like, uh, uh, worthiness, heat, attention, interest. What's, what's this moment like? Before we get into your guys' backstory, what's, what's it like to be at a restaurant that's experiencing this coveted level of attention and, and praise? <laughs> These two are gesturing at you. This yeah. doesn't happen when we have a like, single guest. Uh, they're just, they're trying to eat. No one, want, you don't want to answer this? It's, it's got to feel wonderful, no? I mean, it does feel wonderful. I, I don't think it's something that's on our mind. I mean, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but um, when we're at the restaurant, we're not thinking about, wow, we're really hot, we're really awesome. Like, you know, living in that, in that moment, we're 
doing our best to make sure that we're consistent and, and things are amazing and we're very focused on just doing what we do. It doesn't change the work. It doesn't change the work right. at all. Yeah. David? Uh, I mean, she took the words. I Actually, you took the words out of my mouth, which were, um, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I try to talk about it with the staff, which is, you know, God bless Bon Appetit for donning this amazing gift on us and, and everybody else who said nice things about us. But as I've told everybody that works with us, it doesn't fucking matter. Like, the truth is, was I more proud of the work we were doing the day before everybody said it was great? No. Um, I, I was just as proud that day. And to be honest with you, I still think we have the same things to work on the next day. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, it, to your point of there being so many restaurants opening all the time, you know, who cares? At the end of the day, it's like in 10 years, is anyone going to remember that we were the new hot restaurant? No, they'll remember if we're open or closed. Right. And the truth and is, what their dinner was like last night. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And th and that's the thing. You know, that's what I really want to try and, um, I, you know, at least convey to m our team, which is, you know, every day is what matters, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Bon Appetit has given us this amazing gift, and I think the gift comes in the way of revenue. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the real gift. The gift is filling up the 10 o'clock seat, um, being able to do business in San Francisco, which is harder than anyone could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and the gift is to be able to exist, right? Like that's the gift that Bon Appetit, that's the gift that uh, Washington Post and New York Times and San Francisco Chronicle, that's the gift they all give you is everyone knowing that you exist, right? So at the end of the day, they're not making your restaurant great. You yeah. are every single day that you walk in. You know, it's funny, years ago, on the other end of a restaurant lifespan, right? Because almost every restaurant that isn't Chez Panisse or Spago has a, an end date, right? At some point. Like people. Like usually most restaurants are going to die. Well, usually it's the end of their lease, if they're lucky. That, right? Mm -hmm. That's one, one way it happens. But, you know, I was talking to Anita Lowe, right. uh, who had a Nisa restaurant in New York, and she said, you know, she went on Top Chef Masters, and that bought her a certain amount of time that she could keep going, you know? And then unexpectedly, late in the life of that restaurant, they got a three-star review from the New York Times when they weren't even necessarily respect, expecting they would ever be reviewed again. And then that bought them a certain amount of time, right? But it's also like that kind of at the beginning of a restaurant's life in terms of, right? In terms of giving you guys like kind of the wind in your sail to make a go of it. Yeah, def I mean, it definitely feels that way in the first year. It feels like every single time a pu publication comes out or something comes out that we're all, I think, maybe thinking, oh, okay, maybe that's another season of us being able to get the 10 o'clock seat filled, right? Um, you know, hopefully what that, you know, ends up turning into is the fact that, you know, we're just a really great, everyday, amazing restaurant that withstands the test of time that people like to go eat at, right? Not for an experiment, not for the sheer, like, you know, curiosity, yeah. but more so because they've been there before and they know that they're going to get a delicious plate of food no matter when they come, yeah. and they can count on that. Yeah. Just for the record, Angela's nodding affirmatively at everything David is saying. That's so, usually that's the way our conversations that's go. That's my move. Yeah. That's your move? Okay, and I also or, have to or say... Or she'll not disapprove I, I have to just say, this, I feel like I used to feel when I used to work in film production. We're sitting in the back room at the... I'm sure I'll have said this in the intro, but we're in the back 
room of the Mermaid Inn. They don't open till dinner. The heat's not on. <laughs> it's a little chilly. We all have our jackets on. I feel like I'm in a holding area on a film set. So this is a very nostalgic feeling for me. But and Susan just brought us co- uh, drinks. Thank Susan's you. The best. Thank you, Susan. Uh, so if you hear crinkling and stuff, that's uh, sweetener. Can I ask how? Can I ask how old you guys are? Is that rude? You can ask me. How old are you guys? Uh, I'm 41. 41. Um, 36 tomorrow. No, 35 tomorrow. Yay! Tomorrow? Wait, in right? New York City? Tomorrow. Yeah, 35. Where are you celebrating? Uh, I'm celebrating oh, by doing the, the event. the party. Yeah. The Bon Appetit <laughs> party. party yeah. for him. This yeah. is like when Rafael Nadal has his birthday during the French Open. Exactly, yeah. So, and then, uh, and then we're going to take, kind of a group of us are going to go to dinner at Carbone. And oh, eat yeah. some red sauce and drink big group? some big wines. Big group? Yeah, like 10 people. Perfect. Yeah. That's the, I always say that you, if you want to go to that restaurant, bring a group. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so do you feel like, uh, the reason I asked that about the age is I feel like, incre- and tell me if you disagree, but I feel like increasingly there's sort of a, a I don't want to say stratification because it kind of judges people on one end of it, but people, I think, in your line of work, are, are dis- making different decisions about how much time they want to spend in the trenches paying their dues before they declare themselves ready to be a chef or a chef owner, right? Um, you're smiling. I feel like the answer you gave me about the, um, how you've taken this moment, right? This, this very sort of um, centered way of looking at it, right? This kind of eye on the prize way of looking at it is a very mature way of looking at it. It's the way I've heard people around your age and maybe a little bit older talking about when they got their Michelin star, you know, and that, okay, you know, we enjoyed 10 minutes, now it's time to focus on tonight, right? I feel like, I mean, you both worked at 11. Madison, you, 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 put, in, you put in the hard yards, as they say in sports, right? You, you did not go for the short, quick, um, uh, finish line. I feel like your attitude toward this moment is a byproduct of that. Is that a fair statement? Do you feel like you have the? It's a function of maturity. I suppose it's maybe what you're trying to get out of it. For us, or for me, it's it's more of about the long. It's always been about the long haul, and and it's not. Um, it's my passion, so I'm in it to win it for life, mm-hmm. right? So, <laughs> what a cheesy thing to say, but um, it's and it's just what I do. Yeah. So, it's not, I'm not just trying to make the bucks or get on TV or, you know, write a, write a book mm-hmm. or be on Top Chef or all of those things. Actually, for me anyways, I have no interest in actually doing. I, I enjoy being in the restaurant yeah. and, and cooking. Uh-huh. So, um I suppose somebody that would be less mature um, might run away with these other avenues of it. But um, for me, it's a personality thing, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, um, yeah, I think it's a byproduct also of working in great kitchens for great chefs yeah. um, who have long careers and longevity in the business. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're kind of focused on. Do you want to add anything to that? Sure. sure. Need to. Um, well, I would love but to. But I would love to know what that look you were giving me when I was asking the question meant. Yeah, you know, to your point earlier, you know, it's you have to be careful because you're going to fall into this pitfall of being the get-off-my-lawn guy. Like, oh, 100%. I put in my time, yep. and you didn't put in your time. And, you know, and listen, there's truly vindicants out there who, 
you know, at 21 years old are, are, are geniuses and, yeah. and, and that's great for them. I wasn't one of them. Um, but the fact of the matter is we, that's, there are not that many geniuses out there. And for most people who are opening restaurants right now, um, at a certain age who haven't put in a great deal of time in this industry, um, you know, sure they get swept up in this moment and you know uh, I feel like the way you handle it depends on how many times you've been kicked in your teeth in your life and just because someone handed you a award doesn't mean that next day your restaurant's not going to shut down and you're going to lose everyone's money mm-hmm. and uh, you know all these people who are counting on you to pay their bills mm-hmm. are not going to have that and your friends and family who counted on you are you know going to feel disappointed and mm you know, everything you worked on is going to go up in smoke, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, like I said, the award is great, but give me, give me revenue. Give me people coming to the restaurant. Like I want to go to work every day. I want to go to the market every day. I want to buy produce. I want to see guests. I want to run my business. And, you know, I think, sure, that's a byproduct of, of maturity, but what is maturity besides like, falling down as many times as you have throughout your life and recognizing that, hey, you know what? Like, you might be hot shit today, but tomorrow you're going to suck. Tomorrow you're going to have a terrible day. Tomorrow, like, like life will come back around and kick you right in the teeth again. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, like, kind of get, like, a nice home base and, like, a little bit more settled and just do your work, you know, people are actually going to cheer for it at some point. Yeah. Know? And I think that's the difference between doing this when you're a little bit older and a little bit younger. When you're younger, you haven't experienced that really shitty fall from grace. And when you're older, you're like, you know what? Right around that corner is humility. And, you know, if I'm not putting in the work, I'm like, I got whatever's coming to me. Do you, do you, do you, have you had moments in your past that you feel like when you say this, Getting kicked in the teeth. Sure. (laughs) You know, I mean, a lot of people don't know this about me, but, um, you know, uh, you know, I've been trying to open a restaurant since I left. So I left 11 Madison Park in 2012, and then I went to go travel Europe for a year. I went and worked with, like, Mauro Calagreco out there and Albert Adria and, like, a few different people because I had never had that moment in my life to go to Europe and, and, and stage. So I did that, and it was, like, this amazing experience. And I came back to California. I came to L.A., to, uh, you know, I wanted to do something, right? I wanted to open my own. Your own place. My own place. Mm -hmm. And to make a very long story short, you know, I essentially took the first thing that was offered to me. Um, You know, I got written about in the LA Times. Vogue wrote about me. Somebody was opening a restaurant. They needed a chef. Exactly. Okay. You know, and, uh, you know, I kind of got a little bit of a bait and switch pulled on me in terms of, you know, hey, we're going to open this long-term restaurant with you, but we just need you to kind of, like, do this little project first type of thing. And, you know, it's like, what do you know? You know nothing. You know you know how to cook. Right. That's all you know. You yeah. don't know how to negotiate a lease. You don't know... You don't know that your friend who's an attorney can't do your contracts for you because mm-hmm. they're not that type of attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know that spending ten grand on an attorney is actually a deal. Um, you don't know that you can't solicit people to raise money because that could be securities fraud and you need to get, uh, you know, <laughs> you need to go through a whole, you know, list of things to find, um, you know, investors that are capable investors. Um, you, you don't know any of that. 
And mm. so, you know, I got into one of those situations and it luckily it was short lived and it did not kind of get a lot of press around it. But it was one of those moments where, you know, the rug was pulled from under me when I realized that, you know, I was in a, a completely sour situation and I had to start from zero again, wasting, you know, like a year and a half. After, by the way, after coming off of working at 11 Madison Park and then going to work at Mirazur and working with Albert Adria, like at that point, trust me, you think your shit doesn't stink at all. You think you're the, right. you, you think you're the hottest fucking person around, yeah. right? Like, and you're not. You are absolutely not. You're nothing at that point. You've done absolutely zero. You've worked like everybody else has worked. And if you want to do anything meaningful, you need to work every day and you need to put together millions of small moments mm -hmm. of hard work mm. with no skipping. And you need to do the diligent thing. And anytime somebody offers you something that seems quick and that seems like, oh, this is really good. This will, this will happen really quickly and I'll get everything I ever wanted. That's generally bullshit. Right. You know, because it's never real. It took us four years to open this restaurant. It's amazing. You know, and when people are like, oh, you're an overnight success. I'm like, sure, whatever. I've been in this business since I was 13. You know, and it took me four years to open this restaurant. You know, Angela and I walked through this space with our business partner, Matt, countless times as a auto body garage sitting there banging our heads against the wall, wondering why construction doesn't move faster. Mm. You know, so it's like that old joke they say in like, um, in like the law business, they're like, you know, so somebody says, oh, it, it took you 10 minutes to write that contract. And he's like, the attorney is like, no, it took me 20 years and 10 minutes. Thank you for all that. Yeah, and it sucks, trust me. You know, depression, <laughs> depress, depression is a son of a bitch, especially, you know, when, you know, you get handed a piece of humble pie and you kind of sit there and you're like, wow, like, what does this mean for me? Yeah. Like, also, I have to say, as much as I love the city, I think there are a few big cities where it would be harder to go through a time like that than Los Angeles. It's so big. It's yeah. so spread out. You can feel so alone there. You know, just ask any, you know, ask young actors who are trying to make it there versus actors who are living in New York where you're in an apartment building and you have, you know, like people around you versus, you know, looking out a window and just seeing like the landscape. It's different. Yeah, Los Angeles is an an interesting and amazing place. I try not to um, disparage Los Angeles because it gets, in our industry, it gets talked down a lot. Um, you know, I think Los Angeles has some things going for it to, as an amazing city. You know, it has the best ethnic food in the country, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, it has the best affordable food in the country. And I think the diners in Los Angeles are some of the more sophisticated people. They just don't want to get dressed up to eat. True. Which I have no problem with because yeah. I don't give a shit what you're wearing. Yeah, if no, I, I happen to, I love LA. But we're here to talk about. Yeah, we digress. <laughs> we're going north. Okay, so let's talk about your guys' individual backstories, if we could. You were originally from Ohio? Originally from Ohio. Yeah, what was, what, what kind, what town, what was it like? <sighs> what was it like? What was the name of the town? The name is Alliance, Ohio. Uh-huh. Great name. So, I love the that Alliance. Name. I love that name. <laughs> um, it's a 30,000 people, kind of northeast Ohio, um, in between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Okay. Very uh, blue collar, small, <clears throat> small town mind set. Um, grew up in the country of that town, like on the suburbs. Um, kind of uh, 
kind of pushed to to go to college, like always like set up. My father was like, you're going to go to college. And I'm like, that's great, right? <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to study, but I'm going to go to college. Had your parents gone to college? My, no. My mother is a hairdresser mm-hmm. who owns her own business. Yeah. My father started to go to college, and then he had two children, so he stopped going to college. Now he has a master's degree in engineering. Wow. So we actually went to college at the same time. How cool? Was that cool? I mean, we didn't go together at the same yeah. school necessarily. <laughs> we weren't like in the we, same. Like, rolled in yeah. deep. <laughs> Rod- Pinkerton. Yeah. <laughs> right, Rodney, awesome. back to school. Wow. <laughs> Not too long wow, ago. Wow, with Keith Gordon, <laughs> yeah. if you want to really go deep. Um, <laughs> Triple Lindy. Uh, so, wow, you, is that like right? He's 4.0, yeah. I mean, he went back and, and made, wow. it, made it happen. Was it but, the same uh, university? No. Same university. It was. Different branches. So I went to Kent State University okay. for biology. Wow. Um, what did you think you were going to do with that? I had no idea, to be honest. I. But what drew you to that? I, like, I think a lot of people who end up doing something like what you do, what <laughs> I do, you go to college and you end up doing something... You know, in the arts or or English mm-hmm. literature or biology is that's <laughs> it's very that's difficult. tough stuff. I um, guess for me it would be maybe yeah, it, maybe I mean, for you it was the equivalent of what English was for me. My sister, my older sister, is artistic, so she went. She's always been doing art. So, mm-hmm. and I was the the smarter, or the you know, got better grades sister or child. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of I enjoyed science, um, and so I thought. Well, I wanted to do archaeology. So the, <laughs> this, <laughs> I wanted to do archaeology, but you know, my my father was like, "What is that? Where are you going to go get a job?" You know, this is, like I said, kind of smallish town thinking. Like mm-hmm. you're going to move to Africa or something like that, as if that's what you need to do to do that. <clears throat> um, so then we, kind of, I was like, okay, so I'll do biology. Maybe I'll. Um, become a zoologist or work with animals somehow. I wasn't uh-huh. really interested in veterinary science. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know. But I thought there's lots of jobs. You can take it a lot of avenues. Yeah. Um, biology. So I went to college for biology. Um, started working in a bakery as my first kind of job so I could move out of the dorms and, uh, and get my own apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just... Was that, uh, was that the first real sort of... My first baking you had done. First, that was yeah. my first. That was my uh, the real baking I had done. Like, what, did you bake as a kid, or did you? Uh, a little, a little bit. We bake cookies, kind of, but nothing out of the ordinary. Mm, no, it wasn't. I wasn't like cooking in the kitchen mm-hmm. only because I had to. But it wasn't like I was passionate about cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, we had a garden. Um, my grandparents had an orchard, so I was always surrounded by that aspect of food. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> I feel like most families, there's, it's like you celebrate with food, like it's a thing in your life, mm-hmm. but you never, we never had a focus on it. Like it be, could become a career because where I come from, it's not, you cook to make a living. If right. you cook at all, it's not a place where you're like, at least when I was there, yeah. where there's like chefs and you go to their restaurants and you think of them in this mm-hmm. elevated way that we, we think of now um, in the career that I'm in now. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have that. That wasn't an option. Right. Um, so when I was in college, I worked at a bakery and I started doing cakes um, and I found out I was good at it. What uh, does that mean for you? 
when you say you were good at it? Like, did you, I've heard, I've heard people who do a lot of pastry work mm -hmm. talk about like having good hands and mm -hmm. soft hands or, did you just have, did you seem that you had an innate sort yeah. of? Yeah, I, I, I kind of, uh, it, I learned naturally. It was just like, a, like you were naturally good at it. You naturally understood what it took mm -hmm. like to ice a cake you know the gentle pressure the that kind you know, of thing I was right. detailed very detailed oriented about it I think the first time I like could write on a cake legibly I think that's kind of the first time you tried it <laughs> yeah so you didn't have a lot of sort of failed science <laughs> experiment looking no. things come out of the oven and right no yeah I just understood I was detailed yeah um, just I think the way my mind's built it just works mm -hmm. for me in that aspect. So I ended up dropping out of college, which my parents were really thrilled about, um, <laughs> and started kind of doing wedding cakes on the side. Um, on your own? On my own. Uh -huh. um, kind of started my little home cake business um, and then decided, um, actually got married in that time, <laughs> and then that kind of fell apart and decided to kind of um, take a gander at uh, pursuing the passion that I have developed over the yeah. years. Um, so I went, I moved to D.C., strangely enough, because I had a friend there. It was either D.C. or Chicago. Because um, why? To go to pastry school. No, but I mean, why those two places? Well, D.C., you had a friend. I had a friend in D.C., I think Chicago was not too far away from yeah. Ohio. Um, small town girl at the time. New York was scary. Like I can't, couldn't even imagine like being there. Um, San Francisco is far away. Um, so I looked at a couple programs, uh, visited the French Pastry School of Chicago, decided to go to DC. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went to a small school, Academy de Cuisine, in uh, right outside of DC, <clears throat> which is unfortunately now closed. Last year they closed. Um, but then I moved to DC, went to school, actually got a job in cakes when I first moved there, something I was comfortable with, went to school, uh, did my externship at the Ritz Carlton, mm -hmm. um, was there for three years. What was that like? It was interesting. <laughs> huh. It's an, Can you be more I specific? Mean, it, it's great. It's a, I think the Ritz-Carlton is a great door opener. It looks really great on your resume. I think uh, I actually suggest to uh, cooks to actually work in a hotel because it, there's a lot of different avenues in the hotel that you can get a lot of practice in mm -hmm. with your skills. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's a good skill builder. Um, Working also, in a hotel is very interesting. There's a lot of things happening in there, a lot of uh, drama within the walls <laughs> of the hotel. <laughs> oh, the, the, okay. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, beyond that, there's hotels, there's a lot of volume, there's a lot of special mm -hmm. events, there's a lot of things you might only do <clears throat> one time because somebody yeah, needs good, it for whatever. Yeah, it's good experience. You get a lot. You can work in the restaurant and plate desserts. You can do production for large um, banquets. Mm -hmm. Um, you do tea. We did a lot of tea service, which mm -hmm. is a lot like petty fours and mini mm -hmm. I did a lot of chocolate work for holidays, mm -hmm. big displays. So I really recommend it for a lot of pastry cooks just to kind of get a, some practice. Some <clears throat> is, is it also good, you know, hotel, it's changing a little because some, you know, 
quote unquote big name chefs and groups have gone into hotels, mm-hmm. but is it also good because in some ways you you don't have sort of the eye in most cases you don't have sort of the eye of the media it you know you don't have that what we were talking about at the beginning of this interview right mm-hmm. you're kind of spared that right I mean you're kind of working in a I think so because you're working under the name of the hotel yeah so the hotel gets all the attention yeah. I mean, it wasn't something I ever even thought about no. when I was working in the hotel. Yeah, I'm sure. Just a cook. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even when I decided to move to New York, it wasn't anything I had thought about. It wasn't. I wasn't pursuing um, looking for some big name chef um, to work for. I actually was looking for a mentor as a, a pastry chef mentor, and I <clears throat> had went to New York with friends to. Uh, culinary event at the FCI. Um, they do those like three day weekends mm-hmm. where they invite chefs to do demos. And um, there was a gentleman, Richard Bees. I don't know if anybody remembers him. I think he's in Spain now. But he did a demo. He did a demo. Um, and I really loved his desserts. And when I was at the Ritz, <clears throat> I was looking for something. I was looking to leave to, to work in a restaurant because I hadn't worked in a restaurant. I had worked in a country club before, in the hotel, in a bakery. And I thought, hmm, I'll try restaurants. And I looked around D.C. Uh, but the jobs there, the pastry chef jobs, are like one person. It's pretty much you, and you do everything. And then they don't pay very well, nor do you have health benefits. Mm-hmm. That's what it was like 12 years ago anyways. Um, so I was looking for something a little bit more like a real job yeah. <laughs> where I could take care of myself. Yeah. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to go to New York and, and see. Like, it's a four-hour drive. Had you um, never been to New York before? I had only been once for that weekend. Oh, right. Sure. But uh, I didn't have friends. I didn't know anybody. Um, and I was looking in Craigslist at the jobs. Uh-huh. And 11 Madison Park was looking for a pastry cook. And who happened to be the pastry chef? Richard Bees. Oh so my gosh. it was actually him that brought me there, like his name, because I remembered him from the demo. Um, and he was only there for maybe six months, actually. Um, so I went and I staged with him. And I remember seeing Daniel uh, walk through the kitchen. This is Daniel Holm. Daniel Holm. Yep. And uh, he came up and he said hello, and I shook his hand, and I was like thinking to myself, well, he must be the chef because he's not wearing a hat, you know, like everybody else had toques on. Um, <clears throat> and then um, I signed on to work with Richard uh, at 11 Madison Park, um, <laughs> which was hard because uh, I took like a $4 an hour pay cut to move to New York City. Um, it was very interesting, um, but I was like, "Fuck it, I don't care." Right. You know, I want to. I want to find a mentor. Right. Um, and then, uh, about a week before I moved, so I went back uh, to the D.C. area, put in my notice, gave a three-week notice. My last day was like Easter Sunday, Easter brunch. Um, but a week before I left, uh, Daniel. Whom's assistant called, and I spoke with Daniel, and he's like, well, Richard's not here anymore. Um, but the pastry team had a lot of great things to say about you, and so we'd really like you to, to still come and work for us, but I just wanted you to know. And I'm like, well, I've already got an apartment and quit mm-hmm. my job, so right. I, I'll be there. Um, so you go to EMP. I go to 11 Madison Park, and um, very, very different experience than anything I had done before. Uh, started, well, I mean, 
I think Daniel was there for less than a year when I started, him and Will. Um, I started in April. I think they got three stars from the New York Times in December or in September, I think, of that year. So it was very, you know, Daniel had, like, came and was kind of transitioning the the space into something more refined. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pastry chef that had been there, not Richard, but before Nicole was there, I think she had left and some of her team was still there. And there was this strange dynamic. Uh, the pastry team, let's just say, was not real. <laughs> they were not fans of Daniel Hume and him coming in and changing things and the fact that the pastry chef left. Mm-hmm. It was it was just, <laughs> I don't know, it was like, it was There hard. was some turmoil. There was some turmoil. There was some turnover. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a vision. He had a vision. Uh, and, it, you know, it was very different from, I think, what the, a lot of the people signed up for. Yeah. So there was a lot of movement. Um, so... In the beginning, when I worked there, the first six months was kind of crazy. And uh, I was just kind of learning. I started on PM service, and I was just learning how to do service um, and just kind of making through the day. Mm-hmm. So he had hired he hired a pastry chef, um, another pastry chef to kind of take over. And she left after four months um, in, a, in a flurry kind of upset that she wasn't giving the attention she deserved and at that time I was uh, running production in the morning so kind of like leading the team Mm -hmm. and um, Daniel asked me to work on a project he wanted to start Minyardis he wanted to change the Minyardis into something more um, refined Uh, and so I worked on that with him Um, and then he asked me what my plans were what my goals were and I actually told him that I was thinking about leaving because I had moved there to work for a pastry chef so that, you know, I was looking for a mentor. Um, and it just seemed to be not happening, mm-hmm. um, which kind of has been the path <laughs> that I've been following for a while uh-huh. um, to that point. And um, he's, he had said something about becoming a sous chef um, and we kind of like left it on, let's talk again in two weeks. Um, and then we got back together, we talked again in two weeks, and he's like, you know what, I, maybe I can't teach you everything about pastry, but I can teach you what, it's, what it takes to be a chef. He's like, and I can mentor you in that direction. And so I thought, well, it's kind of a great opportunity. I mean, what else? What, it, you know, right. what else is knocking at my door? Yeah. Let's give it a try. You know, he seemed very sincere about it. He's very passionate. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny thing is, at that point, that was like a leap of faith, by the way. At that point in the restaurants? You mean? Well, in Daniel's career and that restaurant's mm-hmm. career, like, that was a leap of faith. You know, like, Angela had to kind of see something mm-hmm. raw. Go- I mean, I don't know. We're talking about 11 Madison when it was still owned by Danny mm-hmm. Meyer. But, I mean, yeah, but even, there, there was a part that was owned by Danny that was still very famous, right? Like, we're talking about, you know, post- Kind of, it was a brasserie when Daniel got there. They were doing cream, spinach, and steak frites, right? Yeah. And so, and Dan, you know, Daniel, whom although got four stars in San Francisco, 
you know, was still relatively unknown. So for, mm -hmm. for uh, all I'm saying is, you know, Angela had to see this thing that I think a lot of us saw this like crazy kind of tinderbox situation going on there to kind of look at it and be like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see this through. Something's happening here, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, cause I mean, at that point, you know, what, what other reason was there to stay, right? Like you really kind of, as a cook, you want someone who can teach you techniques. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I mean, that's what I was looking for is to become more technical at, yeah. at pastry. But um, I think I was, well, I know I was very lucky um, to start at 11 Madison Park at that time because, you know, I mean, Daniel's a famous chef now. He's 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 there actually for somebody who is as famous as he is when I was there. He's he's around like mm -hmm. he's always around. He's very much around. So. But I, I still see him there when I come. If I pop in for a drink so, at the bar or something, you know, yeah. if he's in town, he's, he's yeah, he's there. So I do. I think that's very special. Um, but he was there making the pasta. He was the only one making the pasta at the time. So I was I was there when he was in the kitchen cooking, and and it's very special. Like I have a very I had a very special relationship with him. Um, I actually learned. I worked with him very closely. So I think. Um, I think what made me stay was the passion that I felt from him. You know, like I hadn't found that. I hadn't. Mm -hmm. I hadn't found that uh, anywhere else I had been. So. Mm -hmm. well, it is funny at that time. I remember going in. Not that I ate there that often, but I remember when Daniel first came in. I very much remember being struck how things were changing in the dining room, you know, the serveware and, I mean, the food, first of all, his stuff. I mean, there was, there were dishes that had so much work on them. Um, and uh, it was apparent that he was, you know, it was also unlike anything Danny had done in terms of that level of, or that type of ambition. I guess that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It, he clearly wanted to take it in a direction, uh, well, they ended up, <laughs> they ended up buying the joint, so mm -hmm. yeah. David, let's get your let's sure. get your story. Just because we just got to Eleven Madison, do you think you could go backwards from Eleven Madison? Yeah, would that sure. be awkward. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no. I mean, not unless you make it awkward. Let's change it up like, a little bit. No, yeah. Okay. So tell me how you how did you end up at Eleven in Madison and in what role? So I guess I'll start just right before that, just yeah. a shred before that. I was a cook at um, at a restaurant called Crew, mm -hmm. uh, which was on. Fifth and Broadway, and this it was, was Chez Galante. Was Chez Galante, you know, Chez Galante was a um, boule, you know, chef. Crew was ran in a very boule type way. That wasn't a great fit for me, so I was like literally counting the days of my year being up. You know, of being like, this was a, probably a mistake, but you know, you you give it a year, right? You always give it a year. Well, this is one of the things that I would say. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no when I said before that I think cooks who operate on different ways today, that is an old school notion. The, the year. year. That's yeah. old school. It definitely is. Yeah. It's definitely <laughs> usually associated with people older, th older than you are. Yeah. But I do think people who go into the kinds of kitchens we're talking about, that's what people do still expect. But it's not the industry norm anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunate. I won't You're not Angela, right? You agree with that statement? Yeah. I think that is an old school sentiment. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. what I meant earlier. Yeah, like totally. I, I, when I say I think there's like these different 
clusters now of cooks and the way they look at the yeah. how to go about it. And I, I and I'm not trying to be the the guy you know the yeah, get, get off, off my, my long guy. No, yeah. and I say it on the show all the time. Things change, right? Totally, you know? and they change, and and a lot of times they change for better and for well, always they change for better and for worse. Yeah. And usually it's by the same mechanism that they are better and worse, right? Yeah. So, um, you but know, I just had Joe Flam on the show recently from Spiaggia, right? And he was talking about a job, and he said I was literally counting to 365. Yeah. You know, and I, I said what I just said to you, like, that's, most guys your age aren't like that. Yeah. Well, and I could rabbit hole down that for anyway. a while. But, you know, so yeah. basically I, um, and so the, um, ironically enough, um, me and Shea Galante had the same two-week notice. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Shay had come and given the cooks his two-week notice and let him know that he was going to go back to Boulay because, you know, like crew kind of, you know, the, uh, the recession was just hitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, crew had slowed down. It was this kind of, you, you, I mean, Angela will remember this because it was such like a key part of the ethos at 11 Madison Park, but there was this time where there was the four-star restaurants, right, which were like, um, you know, Danielle, La Bernardin, Per Se, John, John George, George yeah. right? And then Massa. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And then Frank Bruni had talked about these three restaurants that were, what was it? It was at the precipice mm -hmm. of like the summit or the what? The summit. Yeah. It was something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before the four-star dining, and he had said, you know, oh, I 11 Madison Park. Yeah. Cortone. Cortone yeah. and Crew. Yeah. Right? And yeah. those were the three that were basically vying for what would be the next four-star restaurant. And, you know, I remember at Crew, I went and staged at Cortone as they were opening. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, I just... I walked in there and I stopped for like three days straight and, and they had offered me a job as a chef or not. And I just remember thinking like, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm not doing this. Um, so I co-authored Paul's book. Yeah. So I'm going to leave you here with the microphone for a minute. <laughs> sure, sure. Listen. No, go ahead. It's uh, fine. Uh, what well, were you going to say? What, what did not work for you about that kitchen? I mean, it's not, it wasn't the brutality, which I, I came up in this business, right? Like I worked for Joel Robichon, yeah. right? Like, I don't, like the brutality didn't sway me. Mm -hmm. It was the, and and now after like going back a while and working with more people that had worked for Marco and 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 staging at places like you know Hospital Road and and other things like that, you start to understand um, the level of theatrics that go on in kitchens like that. Just and they to are explain. Theatrics. Uh, when David says Marco, Paul spent two years when he was still a teenager yeah. working at, for Marco Pierre White right. at the re what's referred to as the restaurant, the flagship three-star Michelin, yeah. which is that, which is a, a demanding situation. Sure. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Right, and you know, and Gordon Gordon Ramsay had been there, yeah. and yeah. and so you know, when you kind of go around and you spend more time with chefs that come from that lineage, you realize that, you know, a lot of the. Uh, the stuff that goes on is theatrics, right? It's it's a part of a show, right? Like I I, I remember I, I was just recently having a discussion with a friend. No, sorry, not with a friend. Uh, with one of my cooks, who had um, left a job 
of, and I'm gonna kind of leave names out of this part, but left a job for a, a, a chef who I know very well, who's like of my generation. He and I kind of came up through his whole career together. Who had uh, called him the "see you next Tuesday" word? Okay. Um, and uh, and he had felt so demeaned by that word that he quit. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, that's so funny and ironic. And I was like, hey, listen, like obviously times have changed. Like you you know you really need to kind of keep up with the times and recognize that that's just not the way our industry is working anymore mm -hmm. it's certainly not the way our industry is working in San Francisco anymore mm -hmm. um, and just thinking to myself you know how funny is that because I know exactly where that lineage comes from he was you know for <laughs> he was one of the cooks at Corton and you know for those that go back to kind of like a matter of taste um, he was actually one of the cooks, like getting just absolutely reamed. One of the ones who Paul says, "I'm going to put your head through the wall." Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. so, and so, when you kind of go, it, when you when you really kind of go into that, you, you realize a lot of it is posterity, right? There's a lot of going on. There's a lot being said, but the truth is, you can survive in that kitchen just fine. If you you, you just got to realize it's just words, right? I mean, yeah, you get hit sometimes and stuff like that, like in in those kitchens. But you do in fr like old school French restaurants and and things. Like like that, right? So it doesn't, I'm talking about the theatrics in terms of the wordplay, mm -hmm. right? And I just remember being there thinking to myself, like, I just, I don't want to subscribe to it. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not into it. It doesn't do anything for me in terms of, it doesn't, it, I think at that point I had already done enough in my career to not want, or to not actually feel like starstruck by that. Right, and I kind of saw, uh, you know, although Paul at that point I thought was probably one of the most talented chefs in our industry, I, to me it didn't matter. I just yeah. I wasn't. Into I mean, it. technically Paul is. Technically, Paul's probably the most I don't know if there's anyone proficient. better than Paul. Maybe someone as good, but I don't know anyone who can do what he can do with food. Totally, totally. You need more than that. Right. You need more than that, yeah. and and, you know, if uh, like. Listen, we're going through a moment in our in our industry. We're going through uh, a lot of really, really dramatic things in this industry, and there's a lot of really, really technically proficient people out there who are who are amazing. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, you need to be a leader. You need to be a mentor. You need to be a businessman. You need to yeah. be able to get along with your partners. Yeah. You need to do a lot of things yeah. to get along in this business, and then you still might fail. Right. Right. So you know, it's like. I try not to kind of like get starstruck by people who can do really, really pretty things on plates alone because at the end of the day, it's like that's not enough in this industry anymore. No, I say this all the time. You know, there's no Emily Dickinson's in the, uh, in the cooking trade. I don't know if people know. Emily yeah, Dickinson was, you know, basically did all her poetry up in an attic in Amherst, Massachusetts. And, you know, her stuff got celebrated after she was gone. That doesn't happen with food. Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> food doesn't. Yeah. You, food need doesn't. To, you need a place to serve people right right that's a fundamental thing and to do that takes getting along with people managing people yeah. answering to people yes I agree and, by, with all and that. by the way I don't I don't mean this in any way to be a um, throwing shade at someone who I uh, you know as as a chef, a chef I think you know he's someone that I think has when you talk about you know paying their dues and yeah, working yeah, yeah. their way up you know he, he's definitely one of the people who's one of the best chefs in the country. You know, yeah. I just, I talk about this, uh, I'm talking about it in the context of this industry and where it's going. I totally get it. Right? So you, 
so, so I left crew. Left and crew. so I went to stage at Corton and, and just wasn't for me. Um, and then I was planning on going to Europe at that point. So I, I you know, basically I was making my plans. I was shooting my emails. I even had a couple stages set up. And, uh, you know, months and months before that, I had met with a friend of mine who, um, you know, I'd worked at a previous restaurant with a few of his colleagues um, that worked at 11 Madison Park. Mm. And we all, huh? Sweaty. We're sweaty. Um, <laughs> sweaty, that's a name? That's, his that's neck, a name. His I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. <laughs> um, you'll never guess why that was yeah. his name. So, yeah. yeah. The guy would go, like, through, like, seven tokes <laughs> a night. Um, and so... It was, you know, we all kind of met at the Swift for a few beers, and yeah. we're hanging out, and there was, like, a few guys from Veritas back then, and, and we're all kind of hanging out having beers. And, you know, I meet this French guy, a really, really nice guy named Fabian, and he's, at that point, the executive sous chef at 11 Madison Park, which, yep. you know, everybody in the industry, in New York at least, um, was murmuring about, but it was just, like, it, it was still very raw. It was still very, very raw, right? Like, they were murmuring about it in this way of, like, the food is very good. Um, it's very different than anything else that's going on in the city right now. So fast forward a few months. I'm about to leave, um, and I get a phone call from Fabian saying, hey, I heard you don't work at Crew anymore. I was like, that's correct. Um, he's like, do you want to come into EMP to stage for a sous chef position? And... It was funny because I had heard they were looking for a sous chef and I didn't bother applying mm. because I thought that it was, it, this was, you know, I don't know if New York's still the same way, but New York was this daunting place where you, like, you didn't, you didn't deign to send your resume into a place that you didn't think that you're, like, you were ready for that position, right? Like, back in the So there was a lot of self-screening. At, at least for what I remember. I remember, like, thinking of people like, you know, you would talk about, like, hey, I'm not going to go apply for a cook position at Danielle yet. I'm going to go work at a two-star place and, like, learn how not to get my ass handed to me before I walk into that place, right? I don't know the answer to that question. The only thing that might be different now is, as I like to say, it's it's so much now a cook's market. And there's such a desperate – you know, you see top restaurants now uh, in uh, looking for job candidates on their Instagram accounts. Yes. All the time. We, so We do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there may, people may take a little bit more of a chance, you know? Uh, sure. And, you know. Like, what's going to happen when, you know, there's this Hudson Yards project here? Yeah. When, like, 35 restaurants are going to open, like, overnight, like someone flips a switch. Where are these people going to come from? Well, they don't exist right now. But that's. It's I crazy. Mean, once again, that's kind of a rabbit hole to get down, you yes, know, but exactly. that's why, you know, that's why you see people opening restaurants at a younger and younger age because those people are jumping to sous chef positions when they're like 23 and they've been in the industry for two years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so at that point, it just wasn't that right. Like I, in my mind, had an insecurity about applying for a sous chef position mm -hmm. at that restaurant. You know, I don't think that's the attitude today. Mm -hmm. Um so in any case, he called me and I said, you know, yeah, of course I've heard that. I just figured you guys probably had 100 applicants by now and I didn't, wasn't going to apply. And he said, well, we do actually have 100 applicants. Um, but I was telling Chef that you worked at Robichon for a number of years and he's interested by that experience. So would you like to come and stash? Um, and I was like, sure, what's the worst that can happen? Like, I, just to go check out the kitchen. But I was pretty set on going to Europe at that point. Yeah. 
Man, I walk in the kitchen. I remember I walked in the kitchen and I was completely out of place. You know, I had a goatee at the time and had earrings. earrings yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I looked like, um, what was the band, uh, the lead singer from um, uh, the bald, the sh I had like a shaved Angela, head. do you remember his, remember his, 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 uh, his appearance at the restaurant? Yeah, we were like, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. He's got like diamond earrings in and, and facial hair. And, and like now that I know you, like thinking back on it, I can like see like you're all like, you know, like everybody's looking at you like, I'm like this guy. I'm like, he's going to lose that, the facial hair. Because like, <laughs> we never, we never, um, at least at that time, there had never been somebody that was hired in as a sous chef. You always kind of like, were, and that's like the mm -hmm, motto there, mm -hmm. but like you always work your way up to it. Mm -hmm. So it was like, outsider you know right red yeah. alert yeah. kind of thing yeah and um it was totally like that you know so i could you feel that could you feel the eyes on you not this not during the stage but the first year um i felt like the target it's, straight it's on my back did you keep all that stuff in the first year huh did you keep the facial hair and the earring no I, I showed up to my first day at work with everything yeah uh, 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 so basically i came in for the stage yeah. and um you know, it was unlike anything else. Uh, it was magical in that way that only a Danny Meyer restaurant and now a Will Gadara and Danny, Daniel Home restaurant can be, right? You mm -hmm. walk through the door and someone greets you. Hey, how are you? It's great to see you. We're wel welcome. This is where you'll go. These are the people, you know, that you're going to be working with. People walk by you and they stop and they say, hey, how are you? I'm this person. I work at this station. Nice to meet you. Mm -hmm. Welcome. If you have any questions, let me know. Hey, it's staff meal. Please put your apron here. You know, let's we're gonna go have staff meal together. Okay, cool. Hey, you're, this is service. This is what you're gonna be doing during service. Hey, would you like to taste something? Like, it was done in this way that, like, you know, people who worked at Per Se or the French Laundry or at Alenia or at Danielle or at restaurants like that, you know, that's something that we've all come to know and respect as like what should be done. Mm -hmm. But anyone who's worked in other restaurants um, will know that that's uh, it's not a normal thing, yeah. right? Yeah. You oftentimes, as a stage, you feel like you're there for a little bit of free labor to you know pick herbs for people or to chop yeah. their parsley to do the the shitty job that like a cook doesn't want to do that day, and and more than likely you're not going to get hired and or you're not going to take the job, and you know people are dismissive of you because they don't really care that you're there, mm. um, and that's the culture, and that really wasn't it at you know EMP, and so I just remember service starting and everything getting like you know the heat lamps getting turned on and the pass getting wrapped with linen and you know the sauce pots going up and listen. I, you know, perf perfection wasn't new to me at that point, right? Like, I had worked at Robichon, but there was something different about, there was, like, this buzz, this feeling in the kitchen about what was going on around that. And the ticket machine runs in the first ticket, and Fabian pulls the ticket and says, order in, you know, two top tasting menu. And the entire kitchen of 35 cooks in unison yells, Wee! And I get bumps down the back of my spine and my arms. And I say to myself, I'm going to work in this fucking place no matter what. I don't care if it says a dishwasher, like whatever it is, I'm, I'm going to get this job. So uh, that night, you know, if Daniel likes you, 
you know, he asked the sous chefs to bring you something to cook. So, you know, they had given me like a snapper to break down and like cook and I made a dish and it was good enough to get me a, to do a tasting. So Daniel asked me to do a tasting. And I remember I was doing a tasting the same day as like somebody else, but like staggered by one day. I was doing my prep day the day they were doing their tasting. And it was funny, like I could actually look at the plate and guess where the dude had worked at before. Yeah. Right? And, I know exactly what you mean. And I was like, interesting. Okay, I wonder how this is going to go. And, and the funny thing is when I did my tasting, I was like, well, this guy doesn't want to see food that other restaurants have done, right? He wants to see food from here, right? That was my perspective. So I was looking at the food around me. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to do a tasting based on like what the food looks like here. And I tried to do that. And obviously, listen, if, if I were to taste that tasting today, I could, I would rip it to shreds. But Daniel at that point was a real, I think I still believe that Daniel's biggest trait as a chef is he is one of the best gauges of talent and harnessing of talent and guiding of talent mm -hmm. of anyone in this industry. Mm. Like if you look back to that group of sous chefs that we had, you had me, Angela, Chris Flint, Jamal Kent, Abram Bissell, um, Tim Kaspari, Bryce Schumann, um, you know, Fabian, who's a chef in, in France now. Um, yeah, Sweaty, who's a who's a chef in Brussels now. Um, I mean, and there's have they the, translated the, the, his nickname? There's Thomas. There's Thomas Chen, who's the chef owner of Tom. There's like, Jamie at, uh, Sunday yeah, I mean, oh, Jamie Young, yeah. Oh, Jared Gabbau? Yeah. yeah, he's gone, but yeah, yeah. he um, went home. Did Chris Jekyll? Chris Jekyll, who was the opening um, chef at Ifiori. Like, I mean, the list That's goes a, on, right? Yeah, it's one of those mo one of those moments in time. Yeah, and yeah. so you know, it's like, um, and so I'm sure that he was looking at my menu with all of the mistakes that were in it, but saw the potential in it, mm -hmm. right? And more so, he probably saw the way I was willing to give up anything that I thought about anything else and willing to just buy into anything he said. Mm -hmm. Which, at the end of the day, when you're looking for someone as a mentee, that's really what you want, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, he didn't expect me to be him. He didn't expect me to be, he wanted me to be a loyal and faithful foot soldier, which is what you really do want. That's what everybody wants. Yeah. Because you, I'm you want Ethan Hawke in training day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Right. Like here, have some PCP. Okay. Sure. I'll try that. Why not? When he looks um, at him and says, "I will do whatever you say." Yes. Yeah. And and that's really what you and and to this day, by the way, that's still what everybody wants because you're you're gonna teach everybody. Yeah. What you want them to know, yeah. but you want them to basically just be willing to drink the Kool-Aid. Like My theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. This program is brought to you by Jewel Sous Vide. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real-life Juul user. When you cook with Juul, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. 
The Paired app is intuitive to use and preloaded with all the recipes you'll need, and it has a great visual doneness guide. Juul is awesome for holiday cooking. It's easy to cook for a crowd, and it's perfectly precise, so you can focus on entertaining without worrying about checking food temps, while Juul does all the work. You can try out new cuts fearlessly. One of the best things I ever made sous vide was a juicy, tender heritage goose with juniper berries, and it was life-changing. And pro tip, Juul is small and packs easily, so you can sneak it along on your holiday travels to be this season's food hero everywhere you go. With Juul, you get perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Juul and use code HRN, as in Heritage Radio Network, to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code H-R-N. And happy holidays from all of us at Team H-R-N. Welcome back. We'll get you back to the rest of our interview with David Nafeld and Angela Pinkerton in just a moment. Just our weekly reminder, if you'd like to subscribe to the show, you can do that on Stitcher and iTunes. You can also keep up with the show on Instagram, at Chef Podcast is the way to do that. The handle, again, is at Chef Podcast. And if you would like to leave a review or even just a rating at Apple's iTunes store, it really does help people find the show, and we really do appreciate it. I'm going to keep the mid-show break short this week and turn this right back over to what is, I know, a long interview. But bear in mind, you got two bios this week, so it's almost a, a twofer in a single episode. Returning you now to my interview with David Nafeld and Angela Pinkerton, recorded at the Mermaid Inn in New York City a few weeks back. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. I think for cooks, right, you have there's a certain amount of time where you are just learning, right? And and you, you, you take jobs because of what they're doing at the place where you took the job. And at some point, maybe when you're a sous chef and you start being able to do some specials or whatever, at some point you start developing your own style or having an outlet for your own style, right? Like I always talk about chef's notebooks, you know, like the notebooks people keep. Like yeah. if you look in the early mm-hmm. notebooks or first half of them, however many they have, you know, you just see like salad dressings and notes and it's all other people's stock. stuff, right? Yeah. Stock or whatever. And then as you get further along, you start to see them starting to kind of sketch out their own ideas. You know, it's fascinating. I mean, you can really see a whole the whole arc of a chef's Evolution. If you look from like cooking school or first job to like current, you know, current. Yeah, and that's something that I talk. About, I, you know, I just recently spoke about at one of our pre meals um, with our cook team, which is the idea of not feeling discouraged by the fact that you don't know what your food is yet, because mm-hmm. um, you're not meant to. Right. The truth is, I left EMP. I wanted to open my own restaurant. I didn't know what my cuisine was, which, in retrospect, I'm not sure whether it was right or wrong. Um, for me to leave at that point then. Um, I knew that I was done at that point mm. with the restaurant and I knew that I wanted to work for myself. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what my cuisine was and naturally after I left EMP, I think I spent a number of years doing food that was very derivative of EMP um, and, and the food we were doing there, right? It mm-hmm. took me, and which was another silver lining of us taking four years to open a restaurant because had four years to discover my own cuisine. To, 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 meta, to morph. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you'll find that with most chefs who leave uh, very, you know, polarizing, amazing, yeah. top-level restaurants is there is a level of derivative kind of 
through line through like you know their their former mentor and what they're doing yep. and it takes I mean and Daniel had it as well like if you look back to Daniel's early career it's very reminiscent of you know La Pontebran and and okay. and Philippe Rochat and, and the, those restaurants right it's the most I think it's the most normal thing in the world totally. I think it's almost universal well I and from what I'm not a writer but from what I hear I hear that a lot of writers tend to like take a lot of inspiration from writers that they love and yeah. they'll like slowly start to morph it into like a longer story that they you know that like stylistically they'll start down like a path like you know Hemingway or Dickinson or something yeah. like that and then they'll find their own voice right and then after a while you kind of you're like this is actually the way I start a book. It's very similar. Right. It's very similar and it, it makes total sense. Yeah. I mentioned this story when I had Angie Marr on the show but um, I had a friend in college who wanted to be a poet and he didn't read poetry because he didn't want to go through that stage. He just wanted to develop his own style, right? He didn't want to be imitating great poets he'd read. Well, that's, I mean, that's which fascinating. Is interesting. I think that's more possible for a poet than for another kind of writer. I think you have to read. I think every time I read something great, my writing gets a little bit better, I think. Once in a while, I'll read something so great that I can't write for a week. I can't it's read David Foster it's Wallace. It's upsetting, right? <laughs> because like then I go to write and I'm like, ah, it sucks. It's upsetting when you when you see somebody who's so naturally pure at what they do that it makes you look at what you do and you're like, yeah, my, my work is shit right yeah, now. I'm sure there like are I'm sure there are chefs you guys must feel like this about, but you know, you know, my friend the late Josh Ozersky, who was controversial, he was a good friend of mine. But Josh, once in a while, I'd read a sentence. You know, he'd, I'd read a sentence of his, and I'd go like, I'm, I'm, "I'll never write a sentence like that." I could sit down for a week. I'll, I won't write it. I don't know where that comes from, you know. But that's okay. Yeah. You know, it there's, is okay, there's right? room for craftspeople, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who get yeah, a hope. moment of inspiration, you know, here and there. We are. Um, you guys have places to be. I don't want to shortchange your bio, so let's talk just for a, minute, a couple sure. of minutes. But I want to talk about your. Restaurants. Sure. Your restaurants, the current restaurants. Sure. So tell me how you got started. Uh, so I was 13. Yeah. And I got into a lot of trouble, um, you know, and basically I was, my, my parents are refugees. Um, they came from Belarus, mm -hmm. um, you know, during the Cold War and came through Rome and waited for the refugee status in Rome and came to, you know, eventually got to the Bay Area and you know, my parents both worked. My mom cleaned houses to get through chiropractic school, and then they were both entrepreneurs at one point, but they worked, right? So yeah. it's like, um, you know, I, there wasn't a lot of oversight. And so the way I grew up, and my brother was six and a half years older than me, so that was like a big gap. We weren't like together as much. And so for me, it was like, you know, the year the time that like my brother got busted with a pack of cigarettes like you know he got like you know he was six and a half years older and they took the cigarettes and put it on top of the refrigerator and then the next day I found the pack of cigarettes and went and smoked it <laughs> right like so everything that was my brother was doing like six and a half years before me yeah. I would like see and I'm like yeah I should be doing that too so yeah. I was just in that phase and um, you know I think at 13 years old um, my parents were happy when I showed interest in getting a job, you know, my parents were like, yeah, anything that will keep you off the streets and keep you not from not getting arrested. You know, at that point, I'd probably already, my parents probably were getting tired of getting called by the police to the, wow. 
you know. <laughs> so did you go dishwasher? So first I was a produce stand, uh, like pack, like uh, uh -huh. unpacker, like at an organic produce stand. And then like three months later, the Greek guy, Tony from uh, around the corner owned this place called Village Cafe, um, drove up looking for mushrooms and then told me, it's like a cliche, right? It's like, it says, hey, my dishwasher didn't show up. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you 35 bucks cash if you come work tonight. And at that point, 13 years old, 35 bucks cash is a, uh, I mean, that's a fortune, right? Yeah, you don't sure. even know what to do with that. And so I called my mom and I was like, mom, can I, can I go like work? And she's like, yes, please do anything. Like just, yeah. and so I go around the corner and it's the first time I walk into a professional kitchen and it's loud. There was like these Vietnamese cooks in there, um, you know, young guys kind of like, you know, making fun of each other and cursing and mm. like flipping pans and I walk over to the soap suds and like I, I just it was visceral it felt so amazing the hot water on your hands the basically it was this moment of like me feeling like I had never fit in anywhere in my life before and right now I fit in like I can say anything I want and nothing's inappropriate I can do anything all I have to do is work fast and I fit in Mm. Right, like that's all I have to do, and that made sense to me. That rule book made complete sense to me. In, in school, the rule book didn't make sense because I would sit there and you know, with ADD, it's it's a real it's you know, schools is a real challenge when you don't know what's wrong with you, and you everybody else is getting what's going on, and you stare at the wall all of a sudden for thir and thirty minutes passes by, and you don't know why you're you stare at the wall, and you realize you missed the whole lesson, and there's mm -hmm. a test on it. Yeah. And so you're like, school doesn't work for me. I don't understand. Maybe I'm stupid. I think it's even worse than that, though, because I think so many people who end up in kitchens on the exact path that you just described, which we've talked about on the show a lot, and I've talked to hundreds of cooks about, I think very often the deal with you guys, and it's clear talking to you, right? These are people with a high IQ, but they feel stupid, right? You're, you're smart but you have this thing that makes you incompatible with a classroom situation. So you have this feeling of not being smart when innately you are smart, right? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, so. But you don't know that until you find like this job, even this career that you found and be mature. Still, still even then, to be honest. You really? I think it's, it's taken me, um, I think only in the past few years for me to accept the fact that I am actually a, a smart person. Um, and it's happened a lot through my, um, my uh, kind of investigation and, and discovery about my ADD and really actually like accepting that ADD is a thing and it affects my life and it's not just like, a, it's not just, uh, you know how people are like, oh, I have OCD so I wash my hands a lot. It's like, that's not fucking OCD. You don't know what you're talking about. And people that have OCD I probably have, get really OCD. annoyed when you say something like that, right? right. Like, you know, and um, you know, people with ADD, whenever someone's like, oh, I just, I have a tough time concentrating, I have ADD. It's like, go fuck yourself. You don't know what having ADD is because if you think that's like the simple, like you don't know why you get so irritated by something that you want to snap at people, yes, right? Yes, a like, lot of people are going by what they've seen in movies. Right, of right? course. They, and I mean, yes. I'm not being flipped by the way. I actually, no, 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 I actually yeah, do totally. have OCD and take medicine. And, well, yeah, but and the, I don't, yeah. What people don't understand is there's the whole other, there's, uh, those, are the, these, those are the compulsions. Right. Most people don't understand what the obsessive piece is, but right. we don't have, we're not going to go into that today. Well, but yes, I think with ADD, it's the same thing. They don't understand that it can also, in addition to focus, lead to issues with what 
is called executive function. Right. You make bad decisions. You make decisions based on what you want this moment. Yeah. That if more someone else maybe would stop, consider it, what are the consequences, da 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 da, da make a different decision. Right. You literally, especially in childhood, are incapable of that kind of reflection. Right. Well, and I mean, so it leads to all these problems. Well, and then also you go through your your teen years with a lot of hormones and different things like that. And so, so in any case, you know, over the past few years, I've I've started to do a lot more reflection on that and recognizing that, to be honest with you, ADD is a trait. If you learn how to, you know, where to kind of, uh, you know, pun intended, I guess, focus it right. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I can focus on something probably more than most people, um, and to a point that it's exaggerated. It just has to be compelling to me, you know. Yeah. Whereas, for me to focus on something, I have no yeah. desire to focus on, or it's not even a desire. It's like it's I'm not compelled to focus on. Yeah. It's painful for me to put focus towards. But like, this... and people trying to get me to go there. It's like. Pulling teeth for that. But this is another very common thing in the chef world, right? It's very common that there are uh, cooks who didn't do particularly well in school, mm -hmm. right? Do very well in the kitchen situation. And often there will be a very particular area of interest, not culinary, right? Like I have a friend who could tell you every, he's a cook, chef, could tell you everything about presidential history, U.S. presidential history. It's just something that fascinates. He could read that endlessly, you know, right. but not much else, you know? Yeah. Or they're into music, or they're into whatever. I mean, some people are into, it, it could be anything. Just whatever grabs them for whatever reason. Can I, you know, I have to interrupt for one second. Sure. Um, Angela, I just have to say, when David was just describing, you know, like, I could go into a kitchen, I could say whatever I want. You had this amused look on your face, right? Because you're not that person. Like, that's not your profile. The fact that I can go in and say whatever I want. Is it? That is my profile. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Actually, I've had to like I just pull back <laughs> on that. Really? <laughs> okay. I thought I, when quiet. I thought I was reading, yeah. well, also you had gone to college you and started yeah. down the biology the road. Way, no, so, but you should see photos of her. Like, I mean, pink hair, like, oh. be, like the uh, okay. like the mohawk situation. You know, she was a badass. Yeah, I still am. <laughs> okay. Before we lose sight of it, tell me about the first of your current restaurants and how it came about. Que Fico. Que Fico. I was afraid to try to pronounce it. In Don't front worry of you. about it. Que Fico. Que Fico and Theorita. Um, I want to put a little mustard on it though when I say it. You, well, you should because you're, spo you're supposed to say it with gusto. Is that right? Because oftentimes yeah. you say it with a, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, it's meant to say, oh, that's awesome. So it's que fico. Yeah. yeah. Um, how to come about? Okay, so, you know, Los Angeles happened. I kind of, like, was in this moment of, you know, feeling uh, a little bit down. But I recognized at that point, if I'm going to do anything, I need to be the one doing it um, 100%. Mm -hmm. um, I need to learn how to raise money myself. I need to learn how to negotiate at least myself, how to do... Um, financial projections, I need to learn all that stuff. Yeah. So, so, you know, basically it was a bunch of, you know, 4 a.m. Google sessions and re reading books and figuring all that stuff out. And yeah. I started looking at restaurants in Los Angeles and recognizing that I wasn't finding what I wanted and getting a little bit of a longing to be back in the Bay Area where I'd grown up. That's mm -hmm. kind of where I wanted to be, to be honest. Um, and I had no idea how I was going to raise any money at all. 
Um, and I was just like, okay, whatever. Let's let's go to San Francisco and see. And I looked at 30, 40 spaces. Yeah. And every time I would, you know, and always probably with like four or five different real estate agents, and it was always uh, the same experience. You know, the real estate agent would try and pry out for me whether I had raised money or not. Um, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a very good liar. And usually it would be like, no, I haven't. And then it would just be like, I'm not going to waste my You're time. You're not a good you. liar? <laughs> Uh, I would think you would be really good. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, lying is not... From the childhood you described, I would think it would be a survival skill. Yeah, well, I mean, lying to cops, that's one thing. Like, when you're, like, 15 <laughs> years old and, like, you know... Uh, no, you know, the thing okay. is... Uh, I'll be honest. I guess that was an insulting question. No, it's not. It's actually... Uh, it's, it's not. I, uh, I guess the truth is, the funny thing is I've never really been much of a liar because I didn't grow up in a house where you needed to lie, right? right. Like, my parents were always like, listen, if you're going to do drugs, like, be, be fucking honest about it, all right? If you're going to come home high, like, don't be a liar. If you're going to smell like cigarettes, don't tell me you don't smell like cigarettes. Don't, don't treat me like I'm a schmuck, right? And so I didn't grow up in a house where you had to lie a lot, and so I just learned that, you know what, to say the truth and deal with what the fallout is. Yeah. And, and I'm more of a kind of, like, what are you going to do about it type of person anyways, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know? And so I don't really tell lies. Got it. You wanted to be back north. Got it. You looked so, at a lot of spaces. They were trying to pry whether or not you had financing. Yeah, and it would always be the same thing, which is like, yeah, sorry, um, you know, I don't want to spend more than like one or two times like showing you places because, you know, it's going to be a waste of time. I've seen mm. this all before, right? So I knew I needed to find a, a real estate agent who would at least see some value in me. And I was coming to the end of my rope. And, you know, I had cooked for Dominique Crenn in Los Angeles for her birthday. Mm -hmm. And she had reached out to me and said, that was like one of the best meals I've had in a long time. Thank you so much. Um, and if you ever need anything, let me know. If you want to come and do like a, a collaboration dinner at Atelier Crenn, I'd be happy to have you. That was nice. Yeah, she's one of the sweetest people on the planet. I love her. Um, and so I reached out to her. I said, hey, do you, do you have a real estate agent? You know? And so she put me in touch with hers, but basically did the kind of magic touch, which was like, hey, pay attention to this guy. He's going to do something important. And the real, the real estate that agent was... what it was, took. Well, and he, on his own, was like one of those people. He was, he was from New York. He was just a little bit more kind of like down to earth. He wasn't this like... He, he wasn't like one of the new real estate people, mm -hmm. right? He had been in the game mm -hmm. for a long time. So he met me and he's like, okay, listen, I've done a lot of research on you. I know who you are. I know what you're trying to do. Why don't you tell me about your project? So I brought like my whole deck with me, the whole thing. And I pitched him the way I was going to pitch an investor. And he was like, okay, I get it. I totally see what you're doing. He's like, what we need to do is we need to find a landlord that's going to see what you're doing too. So I'm going to show you some spots, but let's keep in mind that it's like the landlord here is going to be key. And so we looked at a few different spots, and you know some of them were interesting, some of them were not. And then all of a sudden we pull up to this massive auto body garage, and this massive man is standing outside of it, which is the landlord, and this yeah. huge guy. Um, and I walk over to him, and my real estate agent introduces me to him, and we like hit it off right away. He's like the sweetest, kind of very soft-spoken giant. Yeah. And we walked through the auto body shop, and I remember walking to the top floor and seeing the vaulted ceilings and the skylights. And 
the cement and you had you a know, vision. I I knew I had uh, the goosebumps go up my like spine the same way as I did the the second mm -hmm. that they called in that first ticket at EMP, and I knew at that moment that I needed to open a restaurant there. Yeah. And where did the Italian focus come from? No, I've always so working at um, working at Crew. Yeah. I developed a really big interest in the pasta program there. You yeah. know, they they had one of the most exceptional pasta programs mm -hmm. in the in the city, um, and Shay did some of the most delicious, beautiful food in general, but pastas were something that I really fell in love with when I was there. And, you know, I knew I wanted to do more with that. And it just lent itself more to what I naturally enjoyed cooking. And then I just started traveling, you know, anytime I would get a chance to get, you know, have any time I would start traveling to Italy and like going through those areas and sitting there and eating meal after meal and tartaria after tartaria and going to different parts of the country and just experiencing these things and recognizing that I'm like, wow, I've been in French three Michelin star restaurants my whole career, but really at the end of the day, I don't hear that calling to me. I hear mm -hmm. Italian food calling to me. I hear a bowl of pasta, a simple plate of chicories, um, fried artichokes, those things, you know, salumerias, like cheese, uh, just the nuance of beautiful product mm -hmm. placed together mm -hmm. without the chef. Mm -hmm. the, sh the chef essentially being this kind of like... Um, conduit. This conduit of yeah. ingredients, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you introduce these things together. Mm -hmm. You did not manipulate them. You did not do this whole uh, radical kind of production of things. You, you really did. Listen, there is a level of alchemy. And alchemy, I think, is one of the most important things in cooking that I think people, time and alchem alchemy are two of the more important ingredients in cooking, right? Mm -hmm. But getting amazing ingredients, putting them together and not fucking them up is also, I think, hugely important in, in what I consider our cuisine, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, I don't do much to it. Got it. Angela, when you come into the, how, first of all, did you two talk about back when you were in New York together, doing something together? How did you come into this? And, and we're, again, this focus of that restaurant, how did it jive with your sensibility, your background? I don't think we ever talked about uh, doing a project together when we were in New York. Because he left, like, three years, I think, before I did. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, three. You left 2015? I left in the end of 2014. So two years? Two years. Um, and I really had no idea that I would move out west, um, so it wasn't a plan. Yeah. Um, we ended up being out there at the same time. Um, and, and we're friends, so mm -hmm. when I moved to the Bay, David would come and visit his family, and we would have coffee and mm -hmm. have drinks and hang out. And um, she would come to Thanksgiving. I would go to Thanksgiving, oh, and you know, his mother's a, a saint and amazing. <laughs> She's my my other mother. Uh huh. Um, Is that right? Yeah, oh, absolutely, Galena. That's, great. that's She's, great. She's kind of the a beautiful, mom. yeah, a beautiful woman. She's a lot of so, adopted. Uh, a lot of adopted. Unofficially <laughs> adopted adults. Yeah, she's also yeah. a chiropractor in San Francisco. For oh wow, yeah. that's a good person to have in your life as a cook. <laughs> yeah, and she's you know self-made woman and kind yeah. of amazing. And so anytime somebody's back hurts, they go see her from the restaurant. It's pretty awesome. What's her name? Galena. Okay, 
I saw a chiropractor in San Francisco this year. I wanted to make sure that wasn't she. Okay, but go ahead. So how did, what about the whole focus of the, the program there and how, this is always an interesting thing to me, like how mm -hmm. desserts fit in, you know, it's the last thing you eat in a meal. Mm -hmm. There is a pastry chef often. You have your own style and sensibility, but it does need to seem of a piece with the overall experience of the restaurant, mm -hmm. right? I think it's, I mean, because it took three years to get going, we, mm -hmm. we had a lot of time to kind of work on that style together by doing private events mm -hmm. and investor dinners. And, you know, we were uh, not being paid <laughs> through, through the restaurants in any, in any sense of the word. We had to make our own money, so we did mm -hmm. a lot of events together. So we had time to kind of build... Um, what we what we wanted and and really Kefiko is David's brainchild really mm -hmm. so it's uh, you know while I'm creating the pastries I'm also working with him to kind of speak his voice mm -hmm. in in the pastry department as well mm -hmm. so um, so we had a lot of time to work at that together throughout the years um, but I think. Because we come from the same background, we yeah. also have the same feelings when it comes to finding amazing produce and really letting that shine mm -hmm. and, and not muddying that up um, with techniques that are just to be technical. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I think California and San Francisco especially is a, is a, you know, a great place uh, to some of the most beautiful products um, in the world, not just in the in the United States, uh, come from there, and so we find a lot of uh, a lot of Kefiko identity. I think is yeah. from where we are in in the world and from the products themselves. Do you feel like, and I guess I'll make this the last question, but it is interesting to me. I feel like I come across more and more people who have worked like in the, at the three star Michelin level, right? I mean, it, here in New York, right, there's a couple that have Uncle Boone's, right, who both came out of Per Se. Mm -hmm. um, uh, more and more, I feel like I find people who have that background, but when it comes time to do their own thing, don't ne aren't necessarily trying to do that. They end up going in a direction not unlike the way you two have gone. Do, do you perceive that out there? Do you feel like that's something that's either generational or that's sort of something that's just happening at this moment? Do you feel that's just a reflection of how more and more people like to eat and cooks are, you know, part of that population? Uh, it's definitely the path that I've taken, that I think we're taking. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have a, we definitely have a love for fine dining. Sure. Um, for me, uh, especially with leaving 11 Madison Park and with our second restaurant, Theorita, um, I'm, I don't want to be part of, how do I put this? I want to be part of people's every day, mm -hmm. not just their special occasion. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I would love to be part of their special occasion as well. Sure. I want to be in touch with the people that are coming in. Yeah. Um, and I want to be part of their daily lives. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I think both the Arena and Kefiko are, are very neighborhood, even if even uh, 
you know, you can have a lot of different experiences at Kefiko. Um, it's a very neighborhood-centric restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the, maybe the change um, for some people. Mm-hmm. When, they, when they leave fine dining, you get kind of tired of, like, um, not just cooking regular food, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, anyways, that's what it was. And I just wanted to be back in that casual setting where you're making people's everyday lives or everyday meals um, special. I, just, I, I guess I always, not always, probably recently, start asking what's the point of certain things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, to do a fine dining restaurant, I think you should have an idea that is so singular that it's 11 Madison Park or it's Noma, it's, you know, the French Laundry, it's Alenia, right? Like, it's one of those types of restaurants. I see so many fine dining restaurants that I look at as completely derivative or in some way meaningless, right? It's just... It's, it's ambition it's, without... A vision. Yeah, or yeah, without or a the personal, story. Or without, without a personal spine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the truth is, like, I don't care for that. I don't care to do that. You know, sure, I could, if I wanted to, I could do something like that. But yeah. I, if I ever do fine dining, I want to wake up one day with this itch that I need to scratch, with this space that needs what I want it to be, and then I'm going to fight ferociously to to realize get it. that to yeah. realize that right but the truth is like you know i ask what's the point with everything right like not every city or even not every neighborhood needs a fine dining restaurant but yeah. every neighborhood needs a great bakery every neighborhood needs a great italian restaurant every neighborhood needs a great chinese restaurant yeah. and if you can provide that then that's the point right and you know, I think about also stylistically with the food, right? Like, what's the point of the way you're trimming something, the way you're cleaning something, right? Are you doing it so it appears to be perfect on a plate? Um, or are you trimming away parts that are otherwise beautiful and perfect and and amazing? And the literally the only reason to trim them was to appear yeah. to be perfect, right? And And so... Stylistically, it just didn't jive with what I wanted my cuisine to speak to. I could talk to you two for another hour, but you have a you have a lunch to go to. People don't know we we actually stopped the recording at one point. And I went out and refilled the meter. Susan called the restaurant to say you guys were going to be late for your lunch. Maybe you're about to do that again. You'll get there. We're not too far away. Anyway, great meeting you both. It was really nice to meet you too. Uh, big congratulations on everything, not just the Bon Appetit thing. And. Um, I know where I'm coming for dinner next time I come to San Francisco. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Breakfast and dinner. Yeah. Well, oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Well, Theorita well, is open from breakfast. Uh, for breakfast, lunch, and yeah. dinner. So we're actually pretty stoked about that. That's like what most of us are spending our every day on right now. Mm-hmm. So right. we're pretty excited. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Thank See you there. You. And that's our show for today. Caitlin, thanks for jumping in at the last minute. I know people were happy to hear from you. You're crazy. No, they are. <laughs> you know, there. I got a comment on, or not a, a review on iTunes recently 
that said, uh, I don't know what it is, but I like your intros better when your wife's there. Maybe it's just your energy. They did not say I'm going to show it to you. <laughs> I actually don't believe you. 100% true. 100% okay. true. Anyway, thanks for jumping in. I needed you. I just, you know, I don't do well with last minute stuff. Uh, it's, the re-record it's my threw me for a loop. I needed, I needed moral support. It's okay. Netflix, okay. Netflix is there 24-7. That I'm all true. good. And it's still not enough hours. David Nafeld and Angela Pinkerton, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for your patience waiting for me to get the show up on the air. Again, my sympathies on Theorita, but my great congratulations on the continued success of Kefiko. Vitor, thanks for the last minute edit today. Saturday, I really appreciate it. Matt, Katie, and Kat at Heritage, thanks for helping me get these extra shows up during the season as well. To all of you out there in podcast land, thank you for listening. And a reminder, Andrew Talks to Chef live at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, January 12th, 2019, 2 p.m. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next week.